So it's possible the topic that uh, we're talking about tonight, if you have come to either last year or the year before, I can't remember, um, I've actually taught on this topic, uh, but they asked to teach on it again, and I think you'll, um, if you heard it once, it benefits me enormously to go back through it again. But then also, this is a topic, as we talk through this, the principles for this topic on self-harm are really applicable through pretty much every struggle, and so I trust you'll see the connection and overlap with that. Uh, so by way of introduction, for those that maybe don't know me yet, my name is Brian Gaines. I have the privilege to serve at Grace Community Church uh, in the metropolis of Glen Rose, Texas, about 20 miles south of here, population 2,444 within the city limits. Um, great, great little church there. I've been there on staff for 20 years and uh, served there uh, as, as pastor of leadership and discipleship, as well as the director of the biblical counseling ministries there. And so it is good to, to see y'all here and, and, uh, to know that you've made it to track three. You're pretty serious about growing and helping others do the same. So I'm excited about that. Well, let me pray for us and we'll get into our topic for this hour. Our father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word that through it, through its instruction, that we might be able to endure and we might have encouragement and that we may abound in hope, even in difficult, complex issues of life. And so, Father, we pray that in this time you would, by your Spirit, grant us further wisdom, discernment, understanding, uh, both for ourselves as we seek to to live a life uh, worthy of the calling to which you've called us, and as we also come alongside others and help them to do the same. And so we ask that Christ would be exalted in all of this. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So how many of you, as we look at this topic of self-harm, have already counseled somebody who has self-harmed? They have self-injured themselves. Okay, it's quite a few. How many of you, raise your hands, know of somebody who has or is currently self-injuring, self-harming? Okay, every hand ought to be up. (laughs) You know of somebody, you just don't know they're doing it. All right, even in the context of local church, you would be surprised, those that you gather with on Sundays, who probably even now, in the last week, couple weeks, month, perhaps even daily, self-harm. Uh, this is a big issue that is just not talked about. It's a, usually a hidden issue, uh, but it is very, very real, and, and that's why we're going to take a look at that issue this evening. And so, let me give you uh, an example, a real self-harm situation, and I want your feedback. Uh, would it be loving, would it be beneficial for a father who's just learned that his teenage daughter is self-injuring herself to, when he finds out, go to her and say, that's stupid, stop it. Does that sound like biblical counseling? Okay. More than once, that's how I've been introduced to the subject. It's been exposed. The dad finds out. He gets angry. He says something out of anger uh, and, and walks away from it, and he's done. He's done his fatherly duty. But is that a fatherly duty? Yeah, and as biblical counselors, certainly that's not what we want our counsel to look like. And so as we encounter others who struggle with that, James 1.19 really is a great verse that uh, we need to keep in mind. Does anybody know that verse? Advanced biblical training. Who can say James 1.19? Be quick to listen here. Slow 
to speak and slow to become angry. Okay, Self-injury is one of those things that we need to be really quick to listen, to hear, to make sure we understand before we start speaking. Okay, And so, Lord willing, by the end of the hour, you're going to have a, a good understanding of what that looks like. So let's take a look in, then at the per, uh, perplexing problem of self-affliction. And that is idolatry. Probably when you think of self-harm, self-injury, you're not immediately thinking idolatry. Okay, but that is at the root of self-injury, self-harm. And I hope to help you see that, understand that as we go here. And so what goes on in the mind of a person who intentionally harms his or herself? Any thoughts? What goes on in their mind? Self-pity? I want the pain to go away. Yes. Okay, so to punish, to self-atone, to try to get rid of those feelings of guilt. Good, good, good. So some of you already have some experience in this. Or you listened to the last time this was taught. Um, so how, how do we know what's going on? Again, this is deep, right? Biblical counselors, we need to be really smart people. If you want to know what's going on, ask, <laughs> right? Ask. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And we draw it out by asking good questions, right? Um, uh, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need to get the mouth speaking. We need to ask good questions to understand what's going on. And so some good questions that might bring forth issues of the heart behind a behavior such as self-injury, uh, really basic. And, and I've shared these. Um, in fact, I got them from somebody else, I believe, years ago, and I've applied them and really like them. Uh, first question is what, what was going on? You know, what was going on uh, that you um, hurt yourself? And oftentimes for somebody who's self-harming, maybe they were watching TV and there was a commercial and something triggered something from their past. And that painful memory came up and they just had to get away from it. Uh, maybe it was a sense of, of guilt or shame or rejection. Um, but something happened to cause them to think about that. And then second question, then what were you thinking Uh, What were you feeling? What was going on? What was the situation? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? And again, that's where it may have been um, just us thinking about, you know, what actually happened. There was that feeling of shame, that feeling of guilt. And then third question, what did you do in response? What did you do in the response? Well, I went and got my razor from underneath my mattress where I keep it and I locked the door and, and I cut myself or whatever the situation may have been. And so... That pressure, that stressor, that thought, that feeling, that's how they responded. And the next really important question, what did you want? What did you want? What were you seeking when you self-harmed? Okay, from that, tons of information comes out that enables us then to help those people who are doing that. And so, for instance, uh, what did you want? Uh, This was something that was once communicated to me. I want to get all the terrible thoughts out of my head. Um, I wanted relief from my thoughts, okay? That relief, I wanted what? I wanted my desire, ruling desire, I wanted relief. Relief is an idol, okay? At the heart of self-affliction, at the heart of self-injury is idolatry. It's an idol. It's something that we want. And so... What is, what is the missing response 
in in self-harm. People are turning to something. They're turning to self-injury. Where should they be turning? God. And so again, what is a God replacement? It's idolatry. Okay, are you getting it now? At the heart of self-injury is is idolatry. Okay, and so with that in mind, uh, Ed Welch in his excellent little book on self-injury writes this. Self-injury is at its root about God. Avoid him and we miss true hope. Avoid him and we miss true hope. When they self-injure, they're not running to God, right? It's, it's something other than God that they're going to. And so what is the self-affliction uh, that some would turn to it rather than God? Definition, self-affliction defined intentionally. This isn't something that happens accidentally, right? Intentionally causing harm to one's body. And so self-harm is the result of a desire that ultimately fails to look to God, to trust God, to look to his provisions uh, for the temptation uh, that they are um, seeking to endure. And as with all idolatry, uh, see uh, people self-harm as a sinful response to something that they did not want, perhaps, such as abuse. Okay, and so maybe they were abused and their way dealing with that abuse to take away that pain, those emotional pains is to hurt themselves, to literally abuse themselves because that physical pain gives them some relief of that emotional pain that was there. And so some people self-injure because um, of something that they did not want, the memory of that, and some will self-harm because they did not get something that they did want. Okay, approval. And counseled several young ladies um, that just felt rejection, even from the church youth group. Right? They're not getting the approval, the acceptance that they think they deserve, that they want. And so they go home feeling rejected and that emotional pain. How do they deal with it? Some will turn to self-harm, self-injury. And so self-harm is, is nothing new. In fact, Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. All right, to help us see the reality of this, uh, we see self-harm, self-injury in the scriptures in several different places. I'll draw your attention to two. Uh, 1 Kings 18.28, past manifestations of self-affliction. Do you remember the showdown between Elijah and the uh, 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel? Okay. And so those those prophets, they were doing their best to, for their God to rain down the fire to burn up their sacrifice. And Elijah, after a little bit, begins to mock them. Where's your God? Is he relieving himself? And what do they do? They begin to self-injure. First Kings 18.28 And they cried aloud and cut themselves, self-injury, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. What's this associated with? Their God, idolatry. Okay? Moving into the New Testament, Paul writes um, Colossians in, in part to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in contrast to the deceitfulness of the world, the world's wisdom, the world's ways. Um, and, and those in the early church were being tempted to trust in human wisdom rather than in, in God and his word. Paul writes in Colossians 2.23, he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so the severity to the body here likely was some form of self-mutilation that was practiced by pagan cults. Okay, again, associated with idolatry. It's rooted in idolatry. And so rather than seeing Christ as all, in all, which Paul goes on to talk about in Colossians 3, uh, 11, uh, they turn to the wisdom of man, the traditions of man. Now, if we had more time, I, I had a whole list as I researched this, of tons of examples of self-injury, self-harm throughout the scriptures, church history, going further back, going further forward. And it's it's actually um, discouraging if you look at all the manifestations of self-harm that are there throughout history. Uh, but let's take a look for the sake of time at some prominent manifestations of self-affliction today. Uh, my focus in this hour is, is not going to be on those who self-injure with the intent of suicide. Okay? Very different. In fact, go to the cbc.org, and I think Keith and others have done various sessions in the advanced track on suicide. So if that's what you're dealing with, you need to get some of the concepts here, yes, but then go and consider some of the wisdom issues in, in that session. But what we're dealing with today is, is generally referred to as NSSI, or non-suicidal self-injury. Okay, there's no intention to kill themselves. They're just trying to get relief, trying to relieve emotional pain, uh, trying to deal with sinful anger, whatever it is. They're not intending to kill themselves. However, some do. Some of their cuts went a little too deep and got a main artery. Or some of them got really infected. They didn't tell anybody because of the shame, and that went further in and, and eventually killed them. And so this can be deadly, but what we're talking about in self-harm here is not intentionally trying to take your own life. Okay? And so what would be maybe the most common form of self-harm or self-injury that you think is prevalent in the U.S.? Cutting. You got it. Yep. 80% statistically... From, from what they've been able to gather, of those who self-harm do so through cutting. Okay, so very, very common. Other common ones, headbanging or punching, uh, sometimes punch so hard that they break bones. Okay, uh, burning, they'll burn themselves. Uh, they smoke into a cigarette, if not lighter, um, whatever else it may be, and, and they'll, they'll burn themselves. Um, pulling hair, call it trico. Tillomania. Uh, Keith Palmer actually did a great session on this. And so if you want a very focused, zero-in-end session on self-injury in the form of pulling your hair out, he's got a great lecture on that that's also on the website you can listen to. Uh, picking scabs. I would put anorexia and bulimia in this category of self-injury because ultimately you're injuring your body, right? Associated with the idol of thinness or perhaps the idol of, of food. Uh, and substance abuse, certainly that's not good for your body. That's a form of self-harm as well, okay? And so these are kind of the things that we're thinking about. Probably what you're most likely to encounter uh, would be somebody who's cutting themselves, and that's been found out, or perhaps actually came to get help. Usually they don't come to get help. Usually a parent or somebody else finds out, um, and then it's, it's brought before you. So how do we come alongside these people? All right, well, let's think about this. Why would people self-harm in these ways? And again, I'm going back to Ed Welch here, his excellent little book. He said, they just want to feel better. That almost doesn't make sense, right? You hurt yourself to feel better. It sounds kind of bizarre. Self-abusers just don't know how to live with turbulent emotions. 
Okay? They just don't know how to live with the emotions swirling around their head. And so they seek to get rid of that emotional pain through physical pain. And so with these common methods of self-affliction in mind, let's consider 1 Corinthians 10.13. All right, the first time I had a, a self-injury um, situation come before me, I, I never even really heard of it. And it was really bizarre, and it was very complex. And uh, it's like, oh, boy, what do I do with this one? <laughs> and yet, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is what we do with this one. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common demand. Prophets of Baal, way before that, way after that. We all know people who do it. Common demand, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay? And so the, the subtitle of, of this session, Self-Harm, Christ Affliction as a Remedy for Self-Affliction. Okay? And where I hope we'll get to that is, is as biblical counselors, I think he said this in his gospel um, lesson in track one is every skilled counselor will get from a behavioral issue to Christ, to the gospel. All right. Same thing with self-harm. We need to get from this behavior, what's going on in the heart and how do we point them not to behavioral techniques, but to Christ who is able to change the heart, that he would rule the heart in every aspect of their lives. And so I mentioned some of the most common methods of self-harm, but let's consider uh, as well some present manifestations of self-affliction. Okay, some present manifestations. And so just kind of give you a little bit. And these stats are actually old. I'm sure it's more than this now. Um, but as self-injury frequently occurs in private, rates of self-harm are difficult to determine. Estimates vary widely from 3 to 38% in adolescents and young adults. Up to 38% of our young people. Studies conducted with university students demonstrated a 17% lifetime prevalence rate in this population, with 13% reporting that they had engaged in self-harm more than once. Studies of high school students indicated prevalence rates of self-harm in this population range from 13 to 24%. And so up to a quarter of high school students have or are self-injuring. Okay, is this a problem? Yeah, it's a big one. And so just some stories that try to help you put yourself inside of shoes and situations that, that you may encounter in counseling if you haven't already counseled somebody who is or was self-harming. Um, and then before we do that, what is perhaps one of the most unhelpful things that we can say to somebody who is self-harming? With good intentions, what can we say to them that might actually not be helpful? What's that? Oh, like just stop doing it. Yeah, stop doing it. That's definitely not going to be helpful. I know how you feel. Good. Yeah, or I understand what you're going through. Okay. Now, I'm not going to ask your hand to ask you to raise your hand if you've said something like that to somebody else. But let's consider Proverbs 14:10. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joys. Okay. And so perhaps you did even self-harm. And so there is a sense in which you understand or you've worked with so many people of self-harm that you kind of generally get it. But when we say those words, I understand what you're going through. Well, generally, maybe. 
but you haven't lived their life. You haven't been through all they've been through. You haven't struggled with the thoughts they've struggled exactly. And so there's a sense in which maybe generally, but that's not helpful. In fact, I found oftentimes when people say, I understand, and then they tell some story, that person you're trying to counsel shuts you off and they're not hearing anything else anytime down the road. Okay? So let's be really careful. Um, what can we say instead of I understand? I'm so sorry, yeah. So some sympathy, compassion. Yes, help me understand. I want to come alongside you. Would you please help me understand the struggles in your heart as you do this? Okay, very important, very important. Uh, And I I know, and I've said it, I understand. Uh, I've said that to people as well, and I try not to ever say that. Rather, let me... Can I, can I ask some questions so that I can better understand what you're going through so I can come alongside? All right? So here's a couple stories. Um, Bob. Uh, Bob grew up in a home where both parents were very abusive, both verbally and physically. He would try to make his parents happy so he could be happy, but his mom would repeatedly say, I don't ever want to see you again. In junior high... He sought to escape the emotional pain by hitting his head so hard that he knocked himself out. A neighbor later led him to Christ and began going to church. He got married only to quickly become discouraged. His wife seemed far more interested in spending time with another lady friend than himself. He again felt rejected and felt like trash and said very hurtful things to her. In order to keep himself from physically hurting his wife or his wife's friend, he would hurt himself. As their marriage suffered, he then got involved in pornography. This furthered his feelings of despair and guilt and led to further self-harm and punishing himself and in trying to escape the emotional pain of feeling second class. Okay, very real scenario. Another one. How many of you have read Glinda's story? No? Okay. If you're counseling somebody, especially a lady, but really it's, it's universal, um, I would highly recommend you to read Glenda's story. It's, it's one that you won't be able to put down, and it's one that will open your mind to, to the world of a, a self-harmer, somebody who self-injures themselves. Very, very good. This is what she said during times of abuse. I generally felt dirty or self-abuse. I generally felt dirty, worthless, and hopeless. I saw no purpose in my life whatsoever. These emotions triggered my apparent or abnormal behavior. For at least a year, there were times when I would go up by myself to school restroom, church restroom, backyard, etc., sit down in a secluded corner and cut myself, usually on the arms and legs with razor blades. I was not trying to commit suicide. That thought did not cross my mind. But I was filled with such self-hatred that I derived a morbid pleasure from causing myself injury and pain. Okay, real story. As you read the details of that, it's it's, it's gut-wrenching. Another situation. This is not just a U.S. problem. We get the opportunity a couple times a year to go to Guatemala, um, serve with with kids there. And uh, in fact, going back in in a couple months... And in hearing their stories, which we get an update each time we're there, 
uh, it's all I can do to physically sit through the stories. The amount of abuse and stuff those, those young people, mainly girls, have experienced just physically makes me sick. And, and you, don't, you don't walk away from those reports without tears in your eyes. And oftentimes, these girls turn to self-injury because they can't get away from that pain. It's all they know to do. And so there's stories of these girls who come in. Some of them come in with their head shaved, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. And what that means is they were owned by a guy. They were sex slaves and rescued out of perhaps one of the gang areas there. 11 to 14-year-olds come in pregnant, sexually abused, usually by a relative. Having a, carrying a child through that abuse that they didn't want at that age, enormous amount of pain, anxiety, anger, all sorts of things that take place. And so oftentimes they will turn to self-harm to try to escape the emotional pain. And so how do we make sense of self-affliction? How do people become enslaved by it? I found this to be very helpful. This is an adaptation from Ed Welch. Uh, this perpetual pattern of self-affliction and enslaving cycle. Uh, oftentimes, even without thinking about it, uh, those who self-harm are seeking to deal with their hurt in their own way rather than turning to God, understanding he's provided a better way. It's just what they know. It's what they do. It's where they find a sense of relief. It seems like the only way, the easiest way to deal with the pain. I kind of view self-harm as like trying to put a dirty Band-Aid on an infected wound. You can kind of cover it up and hide it a little bit, but you're not doing anything but ultimately making it a little bit worse. That's what self-injury is like. And so to understand this pattern, um, first understand there, there's some kind of stressor, so to speak. There's something that causes them to think about either what they didn't want that they got or that they do want that they couldn't get, such as approval of friends or parents or whatever else it may be. So those thoughts come into mind, and they then turn to self-harm. Welch writes this. You can't read that. I'll read it for you. If you have purposely hurt yourself, such behavior seems necessary, normal, even right. It can feel like a temporary cure. You may hate your behavior, but you also feel like you need it. Self-injury might be your way to protect yourself from something worse. Okay, in the instance of Bob, there was self-injury taking place. Rather than hurting his wife or his wife's friend, he would hurt himself so that he wouldn't hurt somebody else and make that relationship worse. So he thought he was actually doing the honorable thing. So that leads then to relief. The physical pain distracts the emotional pain, and so there is a temporary sense of relief. However, as with all sin, this soon leads to guilt. They know it's not right. They love it, and yet they hate it. They don't want to do it, but they just don't seem like they can live without it. And so the physical pain distracts from the emotional pain, uh, but then the guilt follows that. And so what they're doing here is ultimately in violation of God's word. They're running to their own remedies for relief rather than running to the true source 
of relief and true help and true hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I love about biblical counseling. We actually offer them something that's real, where there's real help, real hope through a real person who's been resurrected, who's at the right hand of the Father with all authority, with all power, with all resources. And we get to point them in their struggles to him. And so how is this enslaving cycle of self-affliction fueled and how can we escape it? And so it starts with our, our thoughts, right? Whatever it is, triggers those thoughts, those thoughts come in. Um, what do they do with those thoughts? What are we called to do with our thoughts? Second Corinthians 10.5, take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. Again, Christ. Where do they need to set their focus? Christ. With how many thoughts? And what happens if they don't do that? Fall back into the same old patterns where they're able to find some measure of relief. And so we're tempted to, to do things that we shouldn't do. Why? Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things. Right? We feel like this is best in the moment. It may feel right. Yet C.J. Mahaney writes this in regards to our feelings. He says, we invest our feelings or lack thereof with final authority. Rather than recognizing that our emotions tend to be unstable and reliable, often governed by pride and riddled with lies, lies that feel like the truth. I need relief. This is the only way I can get relief. Mahaney goes on to say, on a daily basis, we're faced with two simple choices. We can either listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about our circumstances, or we can talk to ourselves about the unchanging truth of who God is and what he's accomplished for us at the cross through his son, Jesus. And so rather than seeing people controlled by their emotions, give in to their emotions, we want to see them instead controlled, compelled, constrained by the love of Christ. So Paul wrote Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us, okay, constrains us. Somebody who's struggling with self-harm, what are they being controlled by? Emotions and thought patterns, right? What's the aim? That we'd show them more of Christ, that they would run to Christ and that in Christ they would find the help that they need. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Okay? Idolatry, living for yourselves, self-harm, it's, it's a form of living for themselves rather than living for Christ. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Live for themselves, but, for, uh, but rather for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so our calling then is to intentionally point those who self-harm to Christ, to Christ. And that leads us then to the profound panacea of self-affliction, which is Christ. Okay, panacea, that's, that's an old word. Probably your kids would have never heard of that. <laughs> so what does it mean? Uh, panacea is a remedy, a remedy for all ills or difficulties. Okay, now to clarify, Christ is a remedy unlike any other remedy. The world can offer nothing close 
to who he is as the one who created the world and rules over the world. Right? And so they need to be pointed to Christ and his person and his work and the divine resources that he's given to them. And so we want them to look to Christ as all and in all. They need to know what that looks like. They need to know what he looks like. To look to him as all in all, even and especially in those times where they're tempted to run back to self-harm. And so what do we need to... To understand about those who self-harm, how do we come alongside them? Michael Emlett years ago wrote a book, and I think there's a new version of the book now, um, where he gives three categories of people, and these are true as you examine the scriptures. This is helpful for us to think through somebody who's self-harming. This is helpful for us to think about ourselves, but this is also very helpful in counseling. In fact, oftentimes I'll ask myself this question, is this person primarily characterized as a sinner, primarily characterized as a sufferer, somebody who's had lots of suffering come upon them or done to them, or a saint. How do they view themselves? Very important. How do they view themselves in those three categories? Okay? And so he puts forth these categories as he writes this. Each person we meet is wrestling in some way with two problems. First, the problem of identity and purpose. Who am I? And what in the world should I be doing? This corresponds to God's address address to us as saints. Second, the problem of evil. Evil from without, which corresponds to our experience as sufferers. We're all sufferers. And evil from within, which corresponds to our experience as sinners. And we are all sinners. And so with this in mind, how do we help those who self-harm, help others struggling with whatever issue it is as saints, sufferers, and sinners? How do we help them to renew their minds, to, to seek that which is above, uh, to set their, their gaze upon Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith? And so let's, let's start off by thinking about somebody who self-harms, and let's consider them in the first category as a sufferer. Okay, Again, those who self-harm, um, there is a very real sense in which they are suffering, right? Emotionally, there is probably, for many of them, a very real sense in which they have suffered in ways that you and I could not even imagine, okay? And so we need to be very compassionate, very sensitive, very aware. We need to come alongside and seek to understand. We don't just tell them, stop that, that's stupid, right? Then you're basically addressing them only as a sinner, but they need to first become alongside as a sufferer, okay? And so lies they may believe um, as a sufferer. So first, a lie, self-harm is necessary to get relief. They literally will come to believe that. There is no other way, there is no other hope for relief. Amy Baker, in her excellent booklet on self-harm, said that Jesus understands your struggles far more than you know. He is a man of sorrows, a man familiar with suffering. In fact, who has suffered like him? He entered into the suffering of this world for your sake. He understands the broken, sinful relationships and situations that have led you to seek relief in your private world of self-injury. But he also knows why that hasn't worked for you. The inner workings of your heart are broken and sinful too. Your efforts to find relief from the pain and evil of life are also tainted with sin and brokenness. That's why your efforts to find relief 
are so often followed by more pain, more anxiety, more sadness, more guilt, and more desperation. And so the lie is they must do that to get relief. Okay? What's the truth? As we help them, biblical counselors, renew their mind according to the word. The truth then, true rest and relief without regret is found only in Christ. Right? And the invitation of Jesus, Matthew 11, 28, 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you What are they looking for? Rest, relief. They're just going to the wrong place. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay? Thus, John Owen wrote, The great duty of tempted souls is to cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for help and relief. And Augustine, the early church father, said it this way. Uh, didn't put that down there. He said, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Okay? Christ's affliction is the remedy for self-affliction. Another lie. Self-harm is necessary to regain control. Okay, Ed Welch says to that, I want control because other people have had control and I do not want that to happen again. Yes, God is over all things, but he is the one who allowed bad things to happen. So I don't want to trust him either. Okay, those girls in Guatemala, this is one of the biggest hangups they have. If God is good, then why did this happen? Okay, and so they believe a lie that God is not Good. They doubt God's goodness. But the truth is, God does control all things for his glory and for the ultimate good. It wasn't good what took place. It didn't feel good. It wasn't right. But God is good. Think of the worst evil ever done. The cross. The only innocent man who's ever lived was killed. But the greatest good came out of the most horrific suffering. And God can likewise bring good out of the greatest afflictions that come upon others. Paul Tripp put it this way. If you wander down into a dark windowless basement and the door locks behind you, you can't see any light or feel the sun's warmth. But did the sun stop shining? No, powerful feelings of grief can get in the way of our experience of God's goodness. Don't. But don't give in to doubt. Hold on to your belief in his love and mercy more than ever before. And so we need to come alongside those who self-injure compassionately and point them to, to God and remind them of the truths of who he is and his goodness. So suffer, second category, is that of sinner. That of a sinner. And so as a sinner, they believe the lie that is acceptable It is acceptable to self-harm. They excuse the behavior because in the moment it brings relief. In the moment it it almost feels good. In fact, medically, supposedly when they do that, there's a sense of your body relieving some kind of chemical that gives you some kind of high endorphins. And they can kind of get addicted to, to that high. And so there really is a sense of feel good, though it's painful. And they know it's not right. And, and so there's just this perpetual cycle 
that goes on and on and on. But the truth is, it's not acceptable to self-harm. Rather, in Christ, my body is the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Self-mutilation, self-harm, self-injuring, bring glory to God. No. And so it's, it's a sin issue. And so another lie, there is no help for me to change. I've tried, I've tried, I can't break through this cycle. I have to go back to it. They sink further down into despair as this goes on and on and on. There is just no hope. They've tried and it hasn't worked. But the truth is, there is real hope for change. Mark Shaw, in his booklet on self-injury, wrote this. He says, one of the reasons that God hates sin is because your sin will destroy you. For this reason, God sent not only his son to pay the penalty for your sin, but God also sent the Holy Spirit to live inside you and to empower you so that you can overcome your desires to feel good by sinning. Okay, so important. Because left to themselves, there really is no hope, right? But as believers, the Holy Spirit indwells us and he enables us to be more than conquerors as Christ is. And so there is real hope and there is real help. And so third category, suffer and sinner. And this is where I get the opportunity sometimes to present the gospel. Um, they may identify primarily as a sufferer. Um, they may not see themselves as a sinner in their response. Um, and so we get the opportunity to point them to a third category, which is a saint. There's only real help and real hope found as you look to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a child of God, you have all your father's infinite resources to help you. You have the spirit of God dwelling within you. You have all that you need. And so that category of a saint is so important. And so as a saint... As believers, we can even believe that I am all alone in my struggles. Right? It just doesn't feel like God is there. No one understands. No one can help. But the truth is, Christ is my ever-present help in time of need. My ever-present help. The problem is, they don't look to him. Or they don't look to him with dependent desperation. Right? They look back to what they're most comfortable with and to what has already brought them some tangible relief. Another lie, I must harm myself to present, uh, prevent further harm. And so again, they might harm themselves to uh, prevent some other harm that they may do if they don't get a sense of relief from this emotional turmoil that's building up. Um, and also... There's a very real sense where when they're struggling with guilt and they're overwhelmed with their guilt and they believe the lies that you're worthless and all those other things perhaps they've been told, they'll harm themselves to try to atone for their own guilt. What's the problem with that? It brings more guilt. If they're in Christ, their sins have already been atoned for. They're trying to take the place of Christ and what he did upon the cross. And so the truth, Christ afflictions provides all the atonement and acceptance that I need. Second Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake, he God made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we can tangibly help those who are self-harming by asking them, what were you thinking when you did this? What were you thinking? There are going to be very concrete thought patterns that you need to specifically identify. Right? It's going to be different with each person. Once you identify those thought patterns, those lies, you take them to these truths and many other truths in the scriptures and you have them memorize those. You have them pray those and you come alongside them, encourage them with those to renew their mind in a lot of these thought patterns and to, despite how they may feel or what they feel like doing in the moment, to do what they know would be pleasing to the Lord and to renew their minds and to seek to please him in those struggles. And so how do we appropriate then the means of grace that are ours in Christ. First, pray. All right? Many people who self-harm, who actually come for help, they've tried, they've struggled, and ultimately it comes down to, to self-reliance or, or prayers that weren't biblical, or they didn't persevere. Um, and so we want to encourage them, first and foremost, to pray. We want to give them, for instance, psalms to pray. Right? There are lots of psalms people who self-injure can relate to. Lots of suffering, lots of anguish, lots of anxiety, lots of affliction. Uh, and, and those people in the midst of that, the psalmists cry out to the Lord with their situation. And they remember who he is and their countenance changes, right? We want to take them to the psalms, encourage them to, to pray the psalms. Psalm 46, for instance, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in yeah, in trouble or in times of need. Okay? A very present. They need to remember that truth because they feel all alone. A very present help. And who is it? God. And what is he? A refuge. Strength. He can give you the strength to overcome the temptation. And so pray. Bible intake. Obviously, they need to renew their minds. They've been thinking lies, believing lies, living according to those lies. They need to know the truths of Scripture. They need to be in the Word. We need to encourage them to memorize key Scriptures that would relate to their temptations and their trials. Uh, they need to be reading the Word, hearing the Word in the context of the church, edified in that way, study, memorizing, meditating on the Word. Why do they cut? Because they dwell on... Something they want they're not getting or something that's happened that they didn't want. They need to meditate instead upon the word of God and what he wants for them. And then they, by the Spirit's enabling, will walk in that path instead. Third aspect, very important. Sin usually happens in isolation, especially self-injury, right? Most self Harm people who self-harm keep themselves somewhat distant, at least in those seasons where they're doing that. We want to encourage them to be very much active in appropriate ways in the context of the church and to involve appropriate others who know their struggles, who can encourage them and come alongside them. Okay, The church is a means of grace. God has given us his people for our sanctification. And so we want to, as appropriate, uh, involve other people in encouraging them. And so uh, another aspect of gathering as a church that is so encouraging is communion. As I was actually putting this presentation together for the first time, I was sitting on the front row in our worship center and uh, people were walking by and picking up the, the bread and the juice. And I was just thinking through what the, the juice represents, the blood of Christ that was shed and that he shed, that our sins would be atoned for. And I started thinking about self-injurers. And why do they shed their own blood? 
because of guilt, because of anguish, because of hopelessness. But what does the Lord's Supper represent? There is therefore now no condemnation. condemnation. He has conquered sin and death. In him we are more than overcomers. He is reconciling all things. He will return. This struggle will one day be over. It, it, it just causes us to look upon his person and his work. They cut because they're trying to self-atone. They're failing to believe the gospel. They cut because they believe there's no other hope. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the hope that we have. He's a living hope. He's a real person, a high priest. He intercedes for us. And so even those those gatherings, the, the sacraments of the church, and obviously in the context of the church, there needs to be the warning um, teaching, singing together. Colossians three sixteen and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so let the word of Christ occasionally flutter through your mind. Right? If, if that's what's going on, are they going to be self-harming? Yeah. Right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. What is wisdom? God's wisdom. It's the word of God. Okay? This is something we do together. We teach and admonish. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, whenever it is, we gather and we sing those truths to each other as well. Right? Good homework assignment. For those who are struggling with their thoughts of the past, what's going on, whether it's with self-injury, whether it's with lust, whether it's with anxiety, anger, whatever else. And I think Andrew Woods is going to teach tomorrow morning on using songs as homework. Okay, I'm I'm going to try to sneak in here and find a chair and sit down and listen to that one. Uh, This is great for people who self-harm because they're struggling with those thoughts and they can't get them out of their head. But what if... You have a playlist for them, Spotify or whatever else app is out there today. And when they begin to think those thoughts, okay, let's take a walk. Go take a walk. Hit your playlist. And I put down a great list of songs that that I think are be very helpful for somebody with that. Put these in your playlist and and sing these songs. Get to know these songs really, really well in the mystery of temptation. So certainly scripture, first and foremost, right? But music ministers to our souls in a very tangible way, and we remember that music. And so we want them to just start singing praises to God and reminding themselves of the truths of who he is as part of their plan of renewing their mind and looking to Christ. Also, encouragement in the context of the church. We are to encourage each other. We want to encourage them as counselors to have a battle plan, right? Those who self-injure, this is a pattern. This has been going on usually for quite a while. Uh, we want to encourage them the next time those thoughts come, what are you going to do? And you need to be very specific. What are you going to do? Who are you going to call? What passage are you going to pray? What songs are you going to listen to? What verses are you going to memorize so you're ready to fight the battle? Uh, those things need to be there, right? And so we want to encourage them to utilize um, the resources God has given them. Ultimately, looking to Christ. Hebrews four fifteen and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. They feel they have no one that can sympathize with them. Right? Many of them. But Christ can. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of 
grace. Do they need grace? Yeah, and it comes through him to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so again, we need to repeatedly encourage them to look unto Christ. Another way to help them in a game plan would be to, to serve. Second um, Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right, And so in the midst of their self-harming, self-injuring, we want them to know the God of all comfort and the comfort that ultimately he can provide and only he can provide in the way that he is able to provide it. But as they learn to look to him, we want them to not be self-serving, which involves self-harm, but rather we want them to, to fix their eyes upon Christ and who he is and what he did. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? And so we want to engage them in meaningful service of others. There is joy when we serve others as God intended for us. Joy is the opposite of those miserable thoughts that are running around their head, right? They need to be focused again on who they are in Christ as saints. If they're in Christ, what he's called them to do and where there's true relief, true rest for the soul, true joy, true peace, all those things come through the Spirit of God as they live by the Word of God in the context of the church of God. So we want to encourage them in appropriate ways to to serve, okay? And ideally serving alongside others who, who maybe know them and their struggles uh, as you've worked with them and got permission to involve a couple other people to come alongside them. We want to encourage them to serve alongside others. Uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress... You knew that had to be inserted somewhere in here. Um, those who know me almost every time I get to talk. Um, so Christian and Hopeful, they strayed from the path that they should have been on. They went through Bypass Meadow, which seemed like the easier way to get what? Relief, right? Why do people self-injure? Relief. They went out of the hard way that, that God had put before them in this season of the path. They, they went out of the way, bypassed the meadow, which looked pleasant to find a better way, a, a, relay, a way that well, there's more relief. And in the midst of that, they're captured by giant despair. Giant despair takes them to Doubting Castle. He beats them miserably, tries to starve them, gives them three options to self-injure, right? Three options for self-injury. How did they find escape? The key went back to the cross, what Christ has provided in the gospel, right? And as they finally, after multiple days, we should pray. It's a great idea, right? We should pray. We're despairing. We should pray. There's no hope. We should pray. Should have prayed in the first place, not get off the path, right? But they did get off the path, and they've been captured. But they pray. The gospel is the key to freedom from sin. The gospel is Christ. Christ is the key. He is the way out, the way of escape. And so... On this, Wayne Mack, in his excellent commentary on Pilgrim's Progress called Christian Life Issues, 
which the juniors and seniors, sophomores at our church are going through that right now. And by the way, if, if you want a two-volume read on Pilgrim's Progress, you read through that, you'll be able to answer well over half of your uh, counseling exam questions. It is so good. Because Wayne Mack is like the modern-day John Bunyan. You prick him and he bleeds Bible, right? And so as Mr. Biblical Counselor, he's expositing Pilgrim's Progress, and it is so good. So, like, y'all need something else to read, but you should when you can. Christian Life Issues by Wayne Mack. So he says this in his commentary on Pilgrim's Progress. He says, The final factor Bunyan mentions that kept Christian and hopeful out of giant despair's clutches was they began to think constructively and unselfishly. Instead of focusing on their own problems, they began to think about how they could use what had happened to them to help other people. Parallel to those who self-injure, right? them to learn how to to serve others all right we have until 7 30 correct 7 15 oh so we're needing to be done okay so just real quick here's kind of all this put together and if you're working with somebody who's self-injuring i I found this to be helpful for me as a tool to work with those what are the the lies they're believing what are the truths what are their patterns And just being able to visualize that with them can be immensely helpful to them. And so since we're about out of time, let's skip ahead and and we're going to finish up here again with Pilgrim's Progress because Christ is the remedy to self-affliction. His affliction is a remedy to self-affliction. So in the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian, uh, having come through the wicket gate, uh, which is Christ, um, then comes to the cross. And this is what Bunyan writes. He ran this way until he came to a place on somewhat higher ground where there stood a cross. A little down uh, from there was an open grave. And I saw in my dream that just as Christian approached the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulder, fell from his back, and began to roll downward until it tumbled into the open grave to be seen no more. After this, Christian was glad and light. He exclaimed with a joyful heart, Through his sorrows, he has given me rest. And through his death, he has given me life. Then he stood still for a while to examine and ponder the cross. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross alone had brought him complete deliverance from his burden. So he continued to look and watch until springs of tears welled up in his eyes and he came pouring and came pouring down his cheeks. Christ's affliction is a remedy to self-affliction. So let's take our counselees and all things to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we realize uh, very much so we live in a world that is hard and people suffer immensely and people add suffering to their suffering because they fail to look into Christ. And so, Father, help us to point them to Christ. Grant us the wisdom and discernment to understand their situations to point them to the promises and the precepts of your word, to the person of Christ. And Father, grant them the grace to cling to him alone. And Father, we thank you that you have provided your son, that we may have life, life abundant, eternal life. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.